Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Robert Anderson, professor of law at Pepperdine University. We'll be discussing his new article, A Property Theory of Corporate Law, which I'll link to in the show notes for today's episode. Rob, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk with you today about your new paper, A Property Theory of Corporate Law. I understand that it's been uh, in the works. And in this paper, you offer uh, a challenge, uh, an alternative to a dominant right now conception or theory of, of the nature of the corporation, the contractarian theory of the corporation. Could you set the stage for us on what that theory is, uh, what its role is in, in the academy right now and in courts right now, uh, and maybe how it developed over the last 80 years or so? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, If I could, I'd back up even a little bit further, which is that I think if you go out to practicing lawyers um, or to uh, financial market participants and you ask them the question of whether a corporation can be owned or not, the vast majority of them would say yes. And if you asked who owns it, they would say the stockholders or the shareholders. But you get a very different answer nowadays when you talk to corporate law academics. Uh, The vast majority of them, um, at least um, within the corporate theory area, I think now subscribe to uh, what you describe as the contractarian theory, um, that corporations are uh, essentially a nexus of contracts, that they're all of the claims on the corporation are contracts, whether those are claims by employees, by creditors, suppliers, customers, and shareholders, uh, and that the corporation is essentially just a nexus for contracting relationships that allows business to be conducted with many different constituencies. And really, this came out of economic theories of the firm, where at one time the firm had been conceived as just sort of a black box with no, uh, just a production function with no Uh, internal workings to it at all. Eventually, Coase um, and then Alshin and Demset, Williamson and others realized that firms aren't just production functions, they have internal workings. And um, they tried to look at the microeconomic foundations of how firms actually behaved and the efficient economic setup for those firms. And that's really what led in in the economics of the firm to the contractarian perspective that uh, firms shouldn't just be assumed to have an entrepreneur who directs everything, that in fact there are multiple actors, there are a set of contracts that make up the firm. And that economic theory of the firm then in the early 80s was adopted almost wholesale into the legal theory of the firm. So that now it's quite common, especially amongst uh, law and economics, uh, corporate law scholars, to think of the firm as merely a set of contracts, that the shareholders don't hold any different claim on the corporation qualitatively than anyone else, and that corporate law ought to be, both is and ought to be, interpreted accordingly. And this perspective has been quite influential beyond academia in the Delaware courts, both at the Chancery and Supreme Court level, where uh, the current Chief Justice of the Delaware Supreme Court recently wrote an article in which he described shareholders as 
not so special because they're just like everyone else in the corporation. And so this perspective is one that's that has become dominant in the Delaware courts, the most influential corporate law court system, and now is driving, I think, the way in which judges interpret fiduciary duties within the corporation. And that's the core of what I'm trying to get at in this paper. So this is a dominant theory in, in the legal academy, and it certainly has its foothold in the judiciary as well. What gaps or flaws in this theory do you or other scholars identify or that you're trying to address in, in this paper? So I, uh, in this paper, am building on a series, really a, a movement of um, both amongst property scholars and uh, some corporate law scholars to see that the corporation is not merely contract, it's also part property, that it's overly simplistic to describe the shareholders as, quote, the owners of the corporation, as the, uh, the layman might, but that it's also excessively reductivist to describe the corporation as just a bunch of contracts um, that are sort of free-floating with no ownership interests. And so um, this uh, line of scholarship from Hansman and Crackman's seminal paper on um, the essential role of organizational law through a number of other more recent contributions uh, has really started to recognize the relevance of property theory to corporate law or sort of um, rediscover it, perhaps one might say, in ways that don't just go into the traditional shareholder primacy versus stakeholder theory divide that, that used to be thought of, but actually go into the corporation and look at, okay, which aspects of the corporation could or could not be replicated by contract. And um, then starting to think of those aspects that couldn't be replicated by contract as being property-like aspects that are subject to a different logic and a different way of interpreting them. So there's this emerging alternative property-based account of the theory of the corporation that, that you are speaking to and, and contributing to. Where does your article fit into that account and what is it adding to the theory from a property perspective? Right. So I think uh, one of the key contributions, I spent some time just establishing that contract law doesn't fit well with what's going on in the corporation. And I think that's fairly easy to establish um, just looking at something as simple as the fact that the corporation codes and states deal only with the shareholders or almost exclusively with the shareholders and don't address other constituencies very much. And so that, you know, go down a whole series of things to show that corporate law is a bad fit with contract law. Beyond these papers, which I think would largely agree with that, the key contribution of my uh, paper, I think, is realizing that what it is that makes the shareholders have an ownership interest in the corporation is their right to exclude. And this is building on the property theory literature, what's called the new essentialism in property, the idea that property has essential substantive characteristics, the most prominent of which is the right to exclude. And recognizing that the right to exclude within a corporation really is the voting rights uh, that are held by default by the residual shareholders in the corporation, typically common stock, and that those voting rights really are the right to exclude others from the corporation. Many people within a business have the right to exclude people from taking assets or using them, all the way down to the security guard uh, you know, who locks the door at night. Mm -hmm. 
But ultimately, all of those other people, all the way up to the CEO and the board and everyone, can themselves be excluded by the shareholders, um, who are the only actors within the corporation who have no obligations, no duties to anyone else or even to each other under normal circumstances, and who cannot be excluded without their consent by a vote of the shareholders themselves. Everyone else, all the way up to the board of directors, can themselves be excluded. So I describe this as the non-excludable right to exclude that's held by the shareholders uh, that is what makes them unique within the corporation. And, and in the article, you make the observation that maybe I can be forced to sell my shares, for example, in a short form merger, but common shares as a, a class can't be abolished as, as property. So the, the property owner might be dispossessed of, of the property, but the property endures. Yep, exactly right. They, there's uh, Most corporate codes contain a provision that requires you to have at least one share of one class of shares with uh, full voting rights. And that's the way Delaware words it. You can't redeem all of the shares with voting rights because what would essentially happen then is you'd have um, what is effectively a nonprofit, which you can have nonprofits, but not under the business corporation statute. So that gets kind of deep into the idea of what it means to be a business corporation. But ultimately, what I focus on here is it's the it's that residual voting right, um, the ability to exclude others from the corporation that falls ultimately to common shareholders by default. That uh, that is the 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 unique property like feature within the corporation that no other constituency holds. One of the features of the the for profit business corporation is the fiduciary duties that officers and, and directors hold. Uh, that's a feature that maybe the contractarian theory has offered explanations for, but uh, some find to be a bit post hoc or unconvincing. Could you discuss maybe the role of fiduciary duties under the contract perspective and then under this property perspective of the firm? Yeah, fiduciary duties have been the most problematic thing for the contractarian perspective to explain because the rationale in the contractarian perspective is essentially that all contracts are incomplete, the corporate contract is no exception. In fact, it's more incomplete than most. It can't provide for what the officers and directors are supposed to do under all circumstances. And the, the um, shareholders are the residual claimants in terms of um, the economic interest in the corporation. So they have the most at stake in terms of how the corporation is run. And so in in light of the incomplete contracts and in light of the residual economic claim, that it's efficient for the board to have a fiduciary duty to the common shareholders. Uh, it's a good rationale as long as you're, you can't depart from the contractarian perspective. But the problem is that all contracts are incomplete and all contracts have residual claimants. And the shareholders aren't the only residual claimants in the sense of those who have a stake in whether the corporation does well or not, uh, as, as many stakeholder theorists have pointed out. And when other contracts are incomplete, we don't imply fiduciary duties of the counterparties. We typically rely on the duty of good faith and fair dealing in contracts. And so the idea that corporations are contracts and that the fiduciary duty arises out of contractual incompleteness doesn't resonate with standard contract law, which rarely imposes fiduciary duties on a contract counterparty. So the property theory, in contrast, it's relatively straightforward. Because those who deal with the property of another, as agents or otherwise, do have fiduciary duties under common law. Indeed, that's where the fiduciary concept originally arose in the trust 
context where you have a trustee dealing with property of a beneficiary on their behalf and therefore has a fiduciary duty to them based in that property relationship. And the, I'm, not impl- I'm not suggesting that the corporation is a trust. That's a debate that goes back 100 years um, or that um, directors are trustees. It's a trust-like entity that is uh, different from a trust but, but has similarities. So both trust and agency law, two areas where fiduciary duties are normally implied, um, are closely connected to the corporate entity and the relationship between those who hold ownership interests in my uh, approach are the voting shareholders and the directors who manage property on their behalf. In, in the paper, you offer, I think, a really tractable uh, analogy, and it, it might be a, a pretty direct analogy in some circumstances of different forms of cooperative ownership of, of real estate. Uh, so condo associations, cooperatives, uh, HOAs, where you do have that mix of direct use by, by shareholders of the assets, or you might have the assets leased out. Uh, you might have certain uh, common property that is controlled by a manager who's hired on behalf of the owners uh, for their their common benefit or, or some other other purpose. But I, I think that's a, a good analogy to to think about this topic. Yeah, property law has spent quite a bit of time on that. It's interesting that the corporation. When you look at property theory scholars, they are they much more readily acknowledge the idea of the corporation as an ownership structure than do corporate law scholars. And so I think it's quite common, property law scholars, although they haven't identified this um, right to exclude concept in the corporation, at least not that I've seen, it's quite common for property law uh, theorists to describe corporations as either a form of ownership or a form of property. But that's much less common in the corporate law world. And I suppose part of that is that if you're a property law scholar, you think of more things as being property. (laughs) Um, But uh, it is interesting that property law theory has not really been brought to bear until very recently on the the question of corporate law, um, whereas uh, the, the contractarian perspective is decades old. What distinctions do you see between this property theory of corporate law and the economic theory of the firm? Uh, and how do those distinctions differ from a contract theory of, of the corporation and the, the economic theory of the firm? Yeah. Yeah. There, there are two different things uh, for two different purposes. And so the way that I try to talk about it is that the firm, you know, in the economic theory is not a corporation specifically. It could be, but it's it doesn't have to be. It could be a partnership. It could be an LLC. It could be a sole proprietorship. Indeed, you know, Coase's original idea of the firm was simply an employment relationship as opposed to hiring an independent contractor. It didn't need to be an entity at all. And so um, the economic theory of the firm is not a theory of a corporation as a legal entity. And many others have recognized this, but then seem not to take the next step to say that the way that the corporation works as a legal entity, even if it's efficient for firms in general to be designed as nexuses of contracts, the legal entity that is the corporation is not necessarily identical to um, the firm in the economic theory of the firm literature. And I think that confusion has led to a lot of the problems 
of the sort of overreach of the contractarian theory and actually has thwarted a lot of empirical research. I don't talk about this that much in the paper, but if you just assume that the corporation is what the theory of the firm suggests that it is, then you, you don't have the ability to test whether those are in fact the efficient contractual relationships because you just build it into the corporate law and make it mandatory as fiduciary duties are largely for corporations. So what I'm proposing is that the legal structure of the corporation is prior to and separate from uh, what an efficient firm organization is. So that then you can look at the legal entity that is a corporation and say, okay, do the um, organizers of businesses try to deviate from these default rules or not? Um, and that allows you to actually test the logic of the economic theory of the firm, whereas if you just assume that the corporation is what the theory predicts, you're unable to, at least of course, agree with that. You're unable to actually get any traction on that problem. So one of the things we do find when we look at the so-called contracts that parties enter into is that they rely very heavily on the default rules. They don't change much from what the corporate law provides. And this has been a really big puzzle in the contractarian theory. Why don't people put more terms into the charter and bylaws and deviate more where they're allowed to from what the default rules of corporate law provide. Quite a few people, uh, Michael Klausner wrote a paper about this, about how everybody just relies on the default rules. And this is kind of a puzzle within the contractarian theory because it's highly unlikely that uh, the legislature, even of Delaware, came up with the efficient ideal form of uh, organization for every corporation. And what I suggest in this paper is that Actually, I think lawyers, practicing lawyers know that once they start deviating from the default rules, that they're taking those rights out of a property regime and putting them into a contract regime that's going to have a different set of interpretive principles to it. And this kind of leads into the main practice takeaway, I think, from this paper, or the main judicial takeaway, which is that there are types of stock that are mixes of contract and property. The most prominent of these is preferred stock, which the Delaware courts and everybody else has recognized are part contract, and they say, and part fiduciary, right? But contract and fiduciary aren't, aren't terms in the same category. Contract goes with duty of good faith and fair dealing, and fiduciary goes with some other type of interest. And what I suggest is it's the property interest that it goes with, so that when uh, courts have to decide between competing interests of preferred stock and common stock, what they're doing is trying to decide whether the preferred stock rights are property-like in nature or contract-like in nature. And if they're contract in nature, then the fiduciary obligations to the preferred stock will supersede them. If they're fiduciary in nature, then you have to put the common and preferred on an equal playing field on, with respect to that right. Rob, if you had a few takeaways from this paper for our listeners, what would those be? Uh, the most important thing to talk about is the fact that if you start seeing the corporation as being a, a mix of contract and property, then the the line between those two things becomes important. Where does contract start and property begin, vice versa? And I take the preliminary position in the paper that it's basically the default rights provided by the statute are the property-like ones. And when you deviate from those, you're putting yourself into a contract regime. The residual voting rights in, of the corporation are the ones that are the most property-like in nature, other um, rights less so. And that divide, I think, has a lot of potential relevance 
for resolving a lot of problems, uh, very broad problems in corporate law, even um, so much as is the corporation a public versus a private creation is because in contract law, if it's just a bunch of contracts, there's not much room for a public purpose to it. It's true that the state can say a contract violates public policy and uh, it's unenforceable, but there's no real harnessing of the corporation for any public purpose um, if it's just a bunch of contracts. Whereas property, even though it's private, all the time is um, harnessed for public purposes. It's regulated. So the corporation becomes a little bit more of a public type uh, entity if you look at it through a property theory. And there are a number of other questions like fiduciary duties of the directors in insolvency. Where do they shift over and why? I think, again, the property theory offers a different perspective on that from from contract theory and one that I, I hope I'll be able to develop in future articles. Our guest today has been Robert Anderson, professor of law at the Pepperdine University School of Law. We've discussed his new paper, A Property Theory of Corporate Law, uh, which I will put a link to in the episode notes for today's show. Rob, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you. Appreciate it.